0: This morning, we're looking at the opioid crisis. Remember all the way back to 2019, the stories about opioids dominated the headlines. The opioid epidemic. Opioids. Opioid overdose. Opioid abuse. The opioid epidemic is getting worse. Then 45- this year, that other public health crisis sucked up Tonight, all the, the oxygen.
1: The outbreak declared a global pandemic. and now the extreme In New York new today, the governor
0: compared the pandemic to September 11th, calling leaving the evil. opioid epidemic in our blind spot. Data trickling in suggest 2020 may set record highs for opioid-related overdose deaths. Today, where we're going wrong and how we can change the tide. From the Enberg Studio at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is trade-offs
2: my name is michael barnett Um, i'm an assistant professor of health policy and management at the harvard th chan school of public health i'm also a primary care physician at brigham women's hospital
0: so michael you set out to understand the opioid crisis and help steer policy in a better more evidence-based direction over the past 15 years or so, we've seen a host of policies at the state and federal level to help curb opioid use and expand treatment access. Can you just give us an overview, sort of a state of play of these policies?
2: Yeah, so I think of the the key policies for addressing the opioid crisis in three big buckets. I'd say the first is really insurance access, and the most important policy there is the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid expansion. The second bucket is another whole raft of policies to restrict or regulate how physicians prescribe opioids. And the third bucket is the set of policies and regulations around access to medications to treat opioid use disorder.
0: So let's take each of these one by one to understand their effectiveness and the impact. And we'll start where you started, which is Obamacare. 35 plus states now have actually chosen to expand Medicaid. What has that actually meant for people who are struggling with opioid use disorder?
2: So Medicaid expansion is really a lifeline for people who have opioid use disorder, because opioid use disorder is really concentrated among people who are in that population. And so some of the evidence that's out there has shown in states that expanded Medicaid after 2014, there's about a 10% reduction in the rate of opioid-related hospitalizations versus other states. Also, there's a 36% increase in the people entering treatment for substance use disorder. So, you know, we're really pushing the needle by, you know, 10 to 20% in outcomes that we care about. What this teaches us is, I think, the relatively straightforward concept that having insurance and having access to health care means that people with addiction are going to access health care that will improve their health.
0: Okay. Let's move to your second bucket, a raft of policies restricting physician prescribing of opioids. What kinds of policies have been most common here?
2: Yeah, this is a group of policies I have some strong feelings about called prescription drug monitoring databases. And the idea behind these databases is that patients with addiction, some of them may engage in something called doctor shopping, where they go from physician to physician or emergency room to emergency room and get different opioid prescriptions as part of their addiction. And before having these databases, there was really no way for physicians to figure out how many opioid prescriptions people were filling across the state. And these databases were basically just a repository where a physician could look up all the prescriptions for opioids or other controlled substances that patients had been filling in the past couple of years.
0: Why are you not such a big fan of these databases? Have they had any positive impact?
2: The evidence suggests that these databases have probably had a decent impact on reducing high-risk prescribing and have maybe cut down on this notion of doctor shopping. But I guess the reason I have strong feelings about these databases is that they've gotten so much policy attention and it's just not really clear this is the major way we're going to move the needle on the real crisis that we face, which is that people are dying.
0: That brings us to your third and final bucket, Michael. The set of policies and regulations surrounding access to medications to treat opioid use disorder. And there's a growing awareness that things like methadone and buprenorphine are really the gold standard medications for people struggling with opioids. At a high level, what are the key policies around prescribing these?
2: This is a group of laws and regulations that are a bit all over the place because there hasn't been much of a coordinated state or federal response. One of them is really Medicaid programs at the state level realizing that if they're going to tackle opioid use disorder, they need to make it easier and more attractive to prescribe these medications.
0: Studies have found buprenorphine and methadone reduce opioid deaths by about half. Yet 80% of people who could benefit from medication-assisted treatment don't get it. Doctors and other medical professionals need a special license to prescribe buprenorphine treatments, and many face caps on how many patients they can treat and for how long. Methadone is also highly regulated. Michael says these sorts of restrictions speak to the persistent stigma that surrounds this type of treatment.
2: There's a sense that people with addiction have a moral problem or a self control problem and not a medical issue and that we can't trust them, or somehow they're not clean. And that if they use medications that actually have opioids as part of their uh, mechanism, that somehow they're kind of cheating.
0: What's the one data point to suggest that maybe the tide is turning, that buprenorphine, methadone are becoming more accepted and will become truly part of standard treatment?
2: One of the metrics that I look at is how many providers out there are getting what's called a buprenorphine waiver. The rate at which doctors and NPs and PAs are getting these waivers has really been exploding over the past several years. And I find that really encouraging that doctors are increasingly aware that this is really just a standard part of medical practice, especially younger physicians. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards, only at Sleep Number Stores or sleepnumber.com.
0: Okay, Michael, you've walked us through the three buckets of policies: expanded access to treatment thanks to Obamacare, a raft of policies aimed at limiting physician prescribing, and a patchwork of regulations surrounding methadone and buprenorphine treatments. Despite some progress, overall, the opioid death toll continues to climb. What grade would you give the United States before the pandemic hit?
2: So I would give the country either a D plus or a C minus right now. The amount of money and effort that we have to throw at this problem hasn't really approached even close to what we really need. I guess the reason it's not a failing grade is because There is progress being made in a lot of sectors, but we have so much progress to make.
0: Since the pandemic hit, much of the nation's attention obviously has shifted to the virus, and we've heard a lot less about the opioid crisis. Yet, in an issue brief from earlier this month, the American Medical Association says more than 40 states have reported a jump in opioid-related deaths. One of the hidden epidemics in the coronavirus pandemic has been an increase in drug overdoses with suspected cases spiking significantly in March, April, and May, according to data from emergency... Michael, can you give us a sense of what has happened since March in the United States as it pertains to the opioid situation?
2: First of all... There's a huge economic recession. Levels of mental illness and symptoms of depression, anxiety are through the roof. And of course, there's a lot more social isolation. I think all of this is really a recipe for depression, loneliness, and the kind of despair that really can feed the cycle of addiction.
0: As tough as the pandemic landscape may be, there's also been an unexpected bright spot. Michael, we've talked about how methadone and buprenorphine have been regulated, That's changed a bit, right?
2: The pandemic triggered kind of a a previously unthinkable loosening of a lot of the regulations that we've talked about around prescribing medications for opioid use disorder and addiction. So, for instance, enabling doctors to prescribe buprenorphine to people for the first time without seeing them in person by a phone call or a video visit.
1: Consulting patients through video conference has opened up a new world for the addiction specialist. It's been the biggest game
2: changer that I've had in my time in addiction medicine. Or really loosening the restrictions around how people can get treated with methadone, which usually many patients have to show up every single day to get their methadone dose. But federal regulations around that were significantly loosened so that more and more folks could actually acquire methadone um, for many days at home.
0: Do you think these changes will last beyond the pandemic? I
2: think in part, we will see that the sky is not falling and we don't have some huge epidemic of buprenorphine or methadone abuse as we loosen these restrictions. It will really feel quite inhumane to go back to the way things were prior to the pandemic.
0: Another approach with promise, Michael says, simply pay healthcare providers more to treat opioid use disorder and integrate these resources into primary care. So pre-pandemic, you gave the country a C minus D plus grade. Do you feel more hopeful today in October than you did before the pandemic?
2: I do feel more hopeful that more people, more policymakers know how we can best tackle this problem. There are some policies we haven't even talked about yet. Things like expanding access to naloxone, which is medication you can use to reverse overdose or harm reduction approaches, things like safe injection sites and needle exchanges. Issues like this that were previously pretty toxic politically, I think have become much more widely accepted, including understanding medications for opioid use disorder.
0: But you're clearly not pulling out the, we nailed it banners, right? We're still seeing a rise in overdose deaths and facing unprecedented economic and personal distress because of the pandemic. What are you most concerned about moving into election season and beyond?
2: We have such divisive politics right now and so many other issues that take up all of the available oxygen and media coverage. This is a population that doesn't advocate for itself in the same way that maybe airlines asking for federal relief so I worry about the ability to just get political momentum behind this even though everyone might agree it's important.
0: Michael, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us on trade-offs.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: We've seen some progress in our efforts to tackle the opioid crisis, but tens of thousands of Americans continue to die each year. A big question is, our growing understanding of the epidemic going to help us build enough political momentum to reduce the stigma and the barriers to care. I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. The COVID-19 pandemic has forced healthcare into a telehealth revolution.
2: Telehealth has existed for a long time, but the paradigm shift is actually putting a reimbursement model around it and recognizing it as formal health care.
0: But how many of these new pandemic policies are here to stay? Next time on Trade-Offs.
1: Thanks for listening to Trade-Offs. You can keep in touch with us between episodes by signing up for our newsletter. Just click on the link in the show notes or on the big orange button at the top of our website, tradeoffs.org. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Trade-Offs Pod, and we'd be eternally grateful if you gave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use, because it really does help people find us. The Trade-Offs team is producers Vicki Stern and Ryan Levy, intern Sabrina M's, communication and marketing manager Emily Patterson, researcher Jamie Song, partnerships lead Jessica Silverman, sound designer Andrew Perella, and senior producer Leslie Walker. The Trade-Offs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. Additional thanks to Rosalie Licardo pakula Susan Sherman, Christina Mutchler, Barbara Andraka Christou, Alexander Wally, Lindsay Allen, Aaron Krebs, Theodore Cicero, Jane Ballantyne, Brandon Del Pozo, Lisa Clemens-Cope, Kima Taylor, Keith Humphreys, and Michael von Korff. Tradeoffs is supported in part by the California Healthcare Foundation, Arnold Ventures, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Additional support from the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics and the Center for Public Health Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of trade staff, advisors, or funders.